Hi, you're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates. Today I'm joined by Kat Gutierrez from the Department of South and Southeast Asian Studies. Welcome to the show, Kat. Hi, good morning. It's so great to have you here. So, I hear that you study the history of science. And we typically talk about science, so I thought it would be really interesting to explore science from a historical perspective. Yes, I do. I look at the history of Philippine botany. You study like how people understand this science. Yeah, I think that's a really easy and good way of putting it. I look at botany specifically at the end of the Spanish colonial period, that's around the late 19th century, up through the U.S. colonial period, which is about through the mid-20th century. And so, as we probably know, the Philippines was colonized by Spain and the United States for quite a lot long time. And I'm interested in how colonial scientists especially understood plant life. You're interested in some capacity, like, how colonial people in particular were studying these sciences? Like, as colonists, was that coloring how they were explaining or understanding the flora of the area? Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually that starts to speak to about two levels of the project that I'm currently working on for my dissertation. The first is how colonial scientists arrived to the Philippines and what they made sense of when they were coming across new and obscure plant life that they had never seen before, either in North America or in Europe. But I'm also looking at the varied actors who were contributing to the science at the time. So these weren't just colonial botanists. These were illustrators. These were collectors. These were field hands. Sometimes they were spouses. And so by expanding the breadth of the people that we understand to be contributors to the science at the time, I think we have a fuller narrative of how people made sense of the Philippine plant world. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, we, I guess, always just think about the scientists who do things, but there's always these people around. That's really interesting to get the spouses. So I guess uh, scientists often brought their spouses along, and these people were also just collecting things. And Yeah, you know, that's actually been probably one of the most exciting elements of my research so far. So I was doing some research in Madrid, at one of the major archives that houses a lot of the institutional documents for Spanish botanists of the late 19th century. And I would find these records of widows who usually wrote to the state requesting pensions for their deceased husbands. And a lot of these husbands were collectors or land surveyors that were sent to the Philippines. Some of these women joined their husbands. And what we have record of is not only, um, you know, there's travel documents from Spain to the colony. Some of them painted Uh, We actually have some surviving illustrations of plant life. Some of them established life in the Philippines. And so there are records of children who were born in the Philippines because these spouses had joined uh, their partners essentially in the field. And I think that's been part of the exciting work because even if you go into the American period, we have women who were the most avid collectors for Manila during the early 20th century, some collecting over 20,000 Uh, plant species for herbarium collections. So it was mostly men, I guess, who were the scientists and the spouses were tended to be their wives. Was it ever the other way around? Yeah, well, I would say that that tends to be what the record shows, right? So we see a lot of men who travel with their wives. Um, I would say that one of the more exciting case studies has been this collector named Mary Clemens. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She's from the United States, and she trained in botany in the U.S. in the late 19th century. And she and her husband traveled to the Philippines together. He was an Episcopalian pastor for the U.S. military. And they took off in this amazing and illustrious career in Philippine 
plant collecting that not only included the Philippines, but other countries in what we now know as Southeast Asia. And after he passed away, uh, she still continued the work. And again, so it's Mary Clemens, really, who's known more for that collecting effort. And I think she spent her final days in Australia still continuing to collect. And she was the one who I was referring to who has at least as been estimated to be about 20,000 mounted species and different herbarium worldwide. Wow. Wait, so he was a pastor. Yes. Interesting. And he was also really interested in the botany um how much does religion and science intersect in colonial collections i think through their case study quite a bit so uh her husband who was the pastor actually assisted her in mounting and shipping materials so mary was the one who's kind of going out in the field initiating the collections identifying them in the field he helped her sort of as a field hand and if you look at the correspondence and i've only touched some of it so far Religion is incredibly important to how both of them are seeing the world and making sense of plant life and what I think, you know, they would really term as God's creation. And some biographers have noted that Mary especially had quite a love um, and an appreciation for a lot of the field hands that who had supported her in her work. And so if you read the letters, there's quite an infusion of both spirituality um, connection with the environment and then, of course, connection with other people who are contributing to their collecting worldwide. That's really cool. So you're studying a lot about how colonial scientists uh, analyzed the plants when they first got there, but uh, obviously there were people there who had been looking at the plants for a long time before. Um, How much did pre-colonial science factor into what the colonial scientists were uh, understanding about the Philippine environment? I would say quite a bit. I would say quite a bit, but it sort of depends on what angle that you're looking at. So, so far in Philippine history and the history of science in the Philippines, we know that medical botany, for instance, and Materia Medica were very well studied, both by the United States and by Spain. Um, This also sort of branched out into economic plants, right, plants that had particular utility uh, in the home or in field work. But what I'm interested in is not only that, but couple of things. Uh, The first is knowledge of plants that's being communicated in Tagalog, which is one of the native languages in the Philippines. And so currently we've sort of studied the history of science through English language, uh, Spanish language sources. I'm interested in what's being communicated in what I think is really the colloquial language of Manila at the time. And we have discovered, you know, newspaper articles that talk about plant life, you know, from gardening to the importance of a rose and sort of how it's traveled from Uh, its provenance into the Philippines. And the second for me, and this has sort of been a side project that I've worked on with historian Pamela Smith at Columbia, um, are textiles. And so textiles at the turn of the century, we have to understand, were almost always built from plants, right? So the technologies of textile production, certainly the colors that that were produced from flora and the fibers um, all came from local plant material. I actually think that this source material has been untapped typically in studies of botany in the Philippines, for a lot of intellectual reasons. You know, I think that there's a particular idea of what textiles and weaving um, is, and that's usually subsumed in anthropology and material culture. But if we start to take a step back and look at it for its science, I think we start to learn a little bit more about local understandings of plant life that we hadn't before. Interesting. So what's the difference between studying textiles as a science versus studying it in an anthropological context in terms of your work? 
Mm-hmm. I'd also, you know, I'll definitely have to credit uh, Pamela for a lot of this sort of new thinking about textiles and craft. A few things. Um, for instance, if you were to look at the kinetics, right, of how one produces a textile, I, I would say that we understand that it's a very embodied process, right? So if you've ever sort of seen textile production, whether it's with a backstrap loom that goes around a person who's producing cloth, okay. or at a foot loom where someone's sort of arched over uh, this contraption that's really producing uh, threads that sort of interlock, we understand that this is a very embodied process that's working with natural material to kind of rebuild something of utility, something of cultural import. For me, I'm really interested, of course, in the plant life that goes into it. And so I'm interested in how people are cultivating the plant material, transforming the plant material into dye, and then using that on natural fibers that they're also creating. And so for me, that's also kind of a newer way of understanding classification and how a dyer or a weaver might view plant life based on those classifications that might look different from you or me trained in perhaps plant systematics. Okay. So what sorts of other classifications are people using in, I guess, this context? Cool. Yeah, well, so I participated, um, luckily, in a great field study and research project in the northern Philippines in 2018. And we were being actually led by an anthropologist. And we were able to integrate with a community in the northern province known as Abra. And what I discovered when I was working with some of the weavers was how they classified bamboos. So there are species of bamboo all throughout the northern Philippines, and depending on the circumference, uh, its density, um, and its length or how it was cut, particular tools could be constructed from the bamboo. The same thing was for particular types of wood. So they would call certain fabrics the names of the woods that they were using, because that wood would help produce a particular pattern different from the wood of a different tree, for instance. Right. And the same would be applied to woods used for looms, right? So they were able to differentiate between the mahogany, right, built looms versus the ones with other more local trees. And I found that very fascinating. And I found that weavers had an incredible knowledge of the plant life around them. And not only based on sort of how they would tactically construct looms and and the textiles themselves, but again, in how they would be able to understand how growing patterns would eventually affect what they could create. Yeah, that's so interesting, right? I always, I'm always like so interested looking back in the history of science, right? That both how far we've come and like how much uh, new knowledge we've acquired so quickly lately, but also when you really look back on it, how much people really knew back in the day before like even uh, modern science started coming up. And I guess that just speaks to the test or that's just a testament to human ingenuity that we were able to uh, rapidly accumulate knowledge um, just without necessarily like sophisticated modern tools, but just, you know, by observing the differences between materials. Absolutely. And, you know, I think, well, I haven't approached a definitive answer around this, but I think by observing modern textile weaving and dyeing, I'm able to understand a little bit more about what's happening at the turn of the century and why, for instance, disciplinary constraints sort of lump textile weaving and dyeing into the realms of ethnology or anthropology, and they never really find their way into science. Right. They're they're kind of there maybe for agricultural purposes or for economic development in terms of local industry. 
But we don't really understand, or there is very little record in the colonial archives about why this could be considered something of a technological advancement or something that uh, really reflects scientific engagement with plant life. And I think that's good. You know, I think it's key because it's starting to really show me a little bit more of the intellectual constraints that even we might have when it comes to something like craft. Just a reminder that you tuned into The Graduates. I'm speaking with Kat Gutierrez from the Department of South and Southeast Asian Studies, uh, and we're talking about her research on the history of botany in the Philippines. Okay, so as a historian, you mostly look at written sources, right? Does it pretty much start and stop with you at the written word uh, in terms of what you study? I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how limiting the the history will be, you know, if if I actually include other sources that aren't necessarily constrained by text. Right. And so I was mentioning that, you know, I look at the Galog written sources, you know, Spanish and English sources as well. But there is a trove of visual material um, on Philippine botany at the turn of the century that I can't not look at because these give insight into a lot of the local illustrators who were hired by colonial botanists to draw plant life. And so there have been historians, Daniela Blakemar is one of them, who's looked at how, you know, visual sources, visual material could travel from the colony to other colonies, from the colony back to the metropole, from the metropole to other centers and sites of botanical study. And without these visual sources, I actually think that not a lot of Philippine material would have really been known of. And so it gives a little bit more credit in my reading to those illustrators who were very much so advancing Philippine botany in ways that perhaps wasn't as acknowledged um, at the end of the 19th century or in the early 20th. But nowadays, you know, when I think about how if I turn to a book on Philippine plants, I'm probably looking for pictures first. Right. I think a lot of us are. (laughs) And Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, to not look at that would be a great mistake. I guess I was thinking of illustrations as part of a, you know, a text, right, that you would include illustrations with written words. And so that would be part of some overall document that you would have, though, the illustrations and the text, right? For most, for most. Um, at the same time, there are a lot of illustrations that are sort of loose leaf in people's archives that possibly went into final productions, possibly were not. You know, they could have been practice sketches. And I actually think these practice sketches are also important to look at because they kind of give to the process of how these illustrators are thinking about, um, you know, plants that they're studying. And so one particular illustrator that I look at, he has, you know, leaves and leaves of sketches. And if you compare those to the final form for what eventually gets published, Uh, by him and various Spanish botanists, there's a great difference. And I think that's going to require a lot more intensive analysis because it might give me a better sense of, again, like I said, how process is working for them at this time. Oh, that's really cool to think about. You can actually see like editor notes in his illustrations or something like that? Oh, absolutely. It's pretty great. I think there's some notes where, uh, you know, he'll draw something and then it'll say underneath, like, actually, I don't know what this is. <laughs> you know, like, this, is this can't really be identified. And it's sort of a scrap, right? Or, you know, what I've probably observed more frequently are, um, you know, plants that then get changed in angle, perhaps to ease viewing or okay. to ease the understanding of that plant material, whether it's, you know, kind of in its growth process. And so that's been really just exciting to see as well because I think that's also requ- that requires a certain amount of artistic skill. Yeah. Um that is reflective of what's happening in Manila especially at the end of the 19th century. 
are there is there a lot of difference between artistic skill and these drawings? Can you see like, oh, this guy's pretty good and this guy's not so bad, not so good? <laughs> or is everybody pretty good because it's yeah. what they're <laughs> What can I say about that? <laughs> what we do know is that at the end of the 19th century there was a primary art school that had been established by the Spanish and most of the well-decorated artists were coming out of this school and so stylistically there is a similarity across all of them. One artist in particular, and he's the one I look at, his name is Regino Garcia, he becomes the lead illustrator for many publications. But you can sort of see that among his peer group, they all kind of approach light and shadow and plants in a similar way. Mm. Um, the more exciting ones for me, though, are, are, like I said, the ones that are produced by spouses. And I'm not too sure yet where their training was. My guess is in the peninsula. Um, and their approach is, again, slightly different. Right. Do you find that uh, the different artists always focus on different parts of plants or is there is everyone kind of understanding the important parts of a plant in the same way? Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good question because I, that speaks to what we're valuing right at the time. Um, in terms of what structures of the plant are most important to communicate, not only to local audiences, but certainly to an international audience. I would say it's all about the same. Um, And we're seeing kind of a lot of the same things. So seeds, right? Right. Leaves, leaf structures, the flowers and the fruit, if possible. Um, Stems. And um, for the more kind of illustrious publications, we'll see these in a kind of a very organized manner, right? Um, I'm thinking back to like the Garcia laminates that you know, label each particular part of a specimen um, to meticulous detail. Again, these are very different from the sketches that are much more rough. But this is pretty consistent across the Spanish publications. By the time we hit the U.S. colonial period, things get a little bit different. It becomes a little bit more text-heavy um, so far in my reading. And quite the, the emphasis on illustration isn't quite as intense. However, what we do ha- see are more photographs right. uh, in the archive. And so these photographs of trees especially become part and parcel of how the United States is communicating the richness of Philippine plant life. Yeah, that's interesting. When was So when was the transition between Spanish and U.S. colonial power in the Philippines? 1898. Okay. And so the Spanish just – well, photography was around during Spanish colonial rule, right? It um, was. It was. It just wasn't used as much – I would say not. Yeah, it's it's been something that I've really been searching for pretty aggressively. And even with, you know, a lot of the newspaper publications, there's a reliance on you know, lithographs, sketches. But I have yet to find, and someone please contact me if you do find this, um, any Spanish-era photographs of plant life. A lot of it is hand-based. It's just it's illustration. Do you know... Um... At the same time, during as Spanish uh, colonial rule in the Philippines, where there were botanical photographs elsewhere in the world, that's a great question. of the of the Philippines. Oh, just in general, like were people taking pictures of plant life at the time, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. was that sort of a development that occurred toward closer to the turn of the century? You know, I haven't noticed anything from any other archive that sort of looked at it in the same way. Something's happening at that beginning of the 20th century that sort of points to a bigger reliance on photographic technology. Um, And I think that's a really good question because it's something that I should be looking into a little bit more, especially if I'm thinking about the standards of international botany and how those might be changing at the turn of the century. There was no color. So are people uh, coloring in on top of the 
photographs? Yes. To, okay. yes. So some nice. of the photographs that are coming out of the United States at the time definitely look like they're being colored by hand. Um, the ones that I've come across specifically from the New York Botanical Garden and their rich archives on the Philippines have been uh, black and white prints. Okay. So I'm really interested to know how you came to want to study the history of botany in the Philippines. <laughs> That's a great question, Andrew. <laughs> and I only laugh, I, you know, not because of you know anything kind of silly about the story, but it really does feel like it's been a lifelong process. You know, I can't tell you that any kind of step has ever been away from this particular trajectory. I actually think that it's made plenty of sense in my life. And so um, I used to work in public health. And so I come out of Los Angeles. I was born and raised, and I was working in public health for a very long time. And I first got started in a community that's um, in a community clinic that serves Southeast Asian immigrants. And so I came to Berkeley as an undergrad, and I was interested in studying public health and Southeast Asian studies. So you were working in public health before you were an undergrad? I did, yeah. So okay. I, was work I started in high school. Cool. And Berkeley seemed like the best place to combine two fields that I really loved. And as soon as I graduated, I aggressively pursued a career in public health. I was working in adolescent health for some time, but I always knew that I loved Southeast Asian studies. Um, I had always an affinity for the region, and I really think a lot of it was because I was working with immigrant populations um, at such a young age. And at some point in my career in public health, I wanted to approach a lot of the problems that I was observing through a historical lens. And I wanted to develop a project on the history of public health in the Philippines during the U.S. colonial period. And so it made sense for me to reapply to the institution that, you know, had really raised that level of curiosity in me. And so I came back to the Department of South and Southeast Asian Studies to see from there. It was in my first semester of my program that I took a class with Laura Nader, and she's in anthropology. And she encouraged me to look at medicinal plants and in the Philippines. And medicinal plants play a very big role in public health in the Philippines. Um, oftentimes, medicinal plants are the most affordable and accessible form of palliative care um, that people can access. And, you know, I started uncovering more information about medicinal plant research, and it brought me to my dad. Cool. And so my dad um, was a bot is a botanist on Philippine plants. Uh, he's a specialist of the Dipteriocarpaceae. Uh, what we know as the Philippine mahogany. But in the 1970s and 80s, he published on Materia Medica. And so the seminar paper that I was writing for Laura's class turned into a bit of a, a study of what my dad was doing in the 1970s during the Ferdinand Marcos dictatorship. And it was only through all of that kind of intensive research into his work, old newspaper clippings, um, oral history with him, but I realized that there was this lengthier, um, more vibrant history to botany in the Philippines that I wanted to track and that hadn't been written. And it pushed me kind of into the colonial period to understand sort of the intellectual beginnings of modern botany as we know it um, in the Philippines and how it's practiced. And so in many ways, I actually think that this project has been a, a life in the making, uh, not only for mine, but for my dad as well. So have you uh, been working closely with your dad? I have, <laughs> and I and I only laugh because, I mean, gosh, we've had such a colorful time. Um, so my father moved back to the Philippines uh, at the end of 2014. Um, he also is a PhD holder. He wrote his dissertation on the Philippine Diptera Carpaceum, and he decided at the ripe age of like 83, 82, to go back to the Philippines to publish his dissertation. 
Wait, so he didn't uh, get his PhD in the Philippines? So he got his PhD in the Philippines, but he left uh, because of the dictatorship, okay. in part because of the dictatorship. And so he left the project behind or the sort of the unpublished manuscript of his dissertation there. Right. And he was re-inspired to pick it up again, to clean it up and to push it out in published form. And so I think in part we're both inspiring one another as we finish our projects. And so when I went to the Philippines in 2017, 2018 to conduct my archival research, he was with me for 90% of it, you know. Uh, and, How's that? Uh, <laughs> that's for a different podcast. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I remember uh, giving a, a conference presentation um, in on the island of Samar in the central Philippines. It was a history conference, and my dad joined me for the presentation. And I said something like, you know, this is a, the word to all of you young history students. Please, you know, bring your parent with you for all of your research. It is both beautiful and exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and... You know, I, if I think back and I'm sort of just even ruffling through the memories of what we've had together, I really wouldn't change it or exchange any of it, you know, for that time. And a lot of it was taxing. You know, I'm, I was the sole caregiver for an aging parent. But at the same time, there are, you know, intellectual insights that he's provided me that I know I wouldn't have gotten without his presence in the field. Right. That's really – he – how old did you say he is now? He's turning 86 this year in August. And he was out in the field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He joined me for that uh, textile research that was in the north. He came to every conference presentation that I had, both with Philippine systematists and Philippine historians. I think there was only one time where we were walking through a botanical garden uh, on the south, in the province of Laguna in the Philippines, where I think maybe, maybe like 500 feet in, he just said... You know what, child? I'm just gonna stay here. And he just like pulls out a cigar, like <laughs> <laughs> continue the rest of the way. <laughs> he's a bit of a character, um, you know. And so I'm, I'm thankful. You know, I'm thankful that he's ambulatory. I'm thankful that he's you know just got all the faculties in place to still have all of this curiosity about the world. And I think that really serves as an inspiration, not only for me, but in life, but in how I approach this work, you know, to see a man who's carried such passion and to have left it behind for 30 plus years and to really pick it up again once more shows me that, you know, the dissertation ain't no big thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that we could do this. <laughs> it's super, It's really cool that you uh, get to spend so much time like on site, right? In the, in where you're studying. Do you, is that common mostly for south and southeast asian studies departments that you like actually go out into the field and get to collect um written sources from wherever whatever country you're studying absolutely i i definitely can speak for our department south and southeast asian studies where we're encouraged you know it's actually required that we go to the country that we're studying or the field sites that we're studying i have a colleague who uh, studies old reliquaries from indonesia and she would spend weeks at archaeological digs you know, across Indonesia. I personally commit to doing, you know, field studies and collecting plants and learning how to collect herbarium grade specimens because I think it inspires a different approach to the work. And so if I am also, you know, uh, sweating beads, you know, trying to find particular material and, you know, getting rashes from maybe stepping into a thorny bush, um, I'm recognizing not only kind of the manual the labor that's going into what was maybe happening at the turn of the century, 
but also appreciating kind of the sensorium that comes along with it. Um, I think there's a lot to be gained even as write, as we write these narratives of the past from participating in what could have been, you know, these collectors or these illustrators' actions then. Uh, and certainly I would say the case for, you know, textile weaving and dyeing. I, I participated in a field school where we actually did it ourselves and we were trained by master weavers and dyers. Once again, because I think we we were able to gain a different kind of insight into the to the work. What's the process like trying to track down documents? I mean, you know, are you do you just like know kind of where to go, or do you actually have to? I don't know, like think about where this missing document might be. You know, right? Oh god, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like reminded of just. The, how long that process really takes. I mean, you're really just hunting. You know, you're really looking for things. And that's, I think, what my process has been like. Um, prior to leaving for um, Manila and Madrid, uh, which were my main research sites for the last two years, I had pr- conducted some preliminary research to know that, okay, well, and maybe in this library in Manila and maybe in this library in Madrid, there are documents that are going to be pertinent to what I need to find. And those are very important for, you know, applying for the funding to get me to these places to begin with. But once in place, you know, and I've been told this by my, my late advisor, Jeffrey Hadler, he just said you have to be really flexible because you'll be surprised by what you end up wanting to find, what, uh, what, what pulls you. You know, and what you discover actually maybe wasn't there to begin with. And so first and foremost, and I still carry that advice with me today, is just you recognize the flexibility. Because I think if you come in with a plan and you only stick to the plan, you become constrained um, by it. And what you discover, even in archival research, is that the data can be in various places, in places that you wouldn't su- suspect to begin with. Well, it looks like we're running out of time on this interview. Uh, typically, at the end of the interview, we have a minute for the guests to make any other larger point they'd like to make about their field or social issues. Um, so if you'd like to take a minute to address the audience on any particular issue of relevance, um, oh, this is a moment. <laughs> that's great. Gosh, you know, I guess... I guess the first thing that's coming to mind, and as I'm, I'm thinking about my dad or thinking about my research when I was in the Philippines, um, I would say that no history is too small. And so when I was in the Philippines, I would really encourage scientists to keep their archives. Uh, and so Manila, in particular, has seen a lot of war and destruction. And voluminous archives were destroyed pretty much from the end of the 19th century up through World War II. It's been really a work of not only repatriating material, but rebuilding archives that were lost. And so when I see scientists now, I say, please, just, just keep your letters, keep keep the Viber messages, keep, keep your books, keep your libraries, give them away, because you never know, you know what interested and curious soul might come around and want to write that story. Uh, we have... You know, troves of information on the history of science coming out of Europe and North America. We're only now building, I think, better histories of science in the, you know, former colonies in in Southeast Asia, in Latin America, in Africa. And so part of the work, I think, now even talking to you, Andrew, is about sort of encouraging people to remember that those stories, you know, the very human element behind STEM, you know, the very human element behind research uh, can make for one hell of a history. It's a great message, yeah. Um, thanks so much for being on the show, Kat. Uh, I've been speaking today with Kat Gutierrez uh, from the Department of South and Southeast Asian Studies 
She's been talking about the history of botany in the Philippines and her path to her current PhD program. Um, Again, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.